Spirits of French Lick is proud to introduce the Lee Sinclair Four Grain Bottled and Bond Bourbon. This four-year-age, double-pot distilled, non-chill filtered bourbon has creamy, round, and lifting notes with caramel and vanilla, followed by apple, mint, graham cracker, and ginger, as well as cardamom. The finish is slightly French walnut, resolving the sweet, fruity, almost ground cherry and white pepper. Our spirits are available for tasting and purchase inside the French Lick Winery and Distillery. Spirits of French Lick. Respect the grain. Please enjoy responsibly. This is Alan Bishop, head alchemist at Spirits of French Lake Distillery. We're glad to introduce to you our newest bottled and bond bourbons, the Lee W. Sinclair Four Grain Bourbon and the Maddie Gladden High Rye Bourbon. As always, these two bourbons are deeply rooted in the history of our location in the Black Forest of Southern Indiana. Always double pot distilled, never chill filtered, made using the finest grains, alternative and historic yeast strains that we propagate ourselves, and the methodology that once made Southern Indiana an epicenter of American distilling. Matured gracefully in 53-gallon number 2 char, new American oak barrels, using a low 105 entry proof, the Lee Sinclair presents an oak forward profile, which pushes forward the definition and conversation about bourbon possibilities. While the Maddie Gladden graces us and demonstrates respect with her 35% rye mash bill, it's not just the spirits in the bottle, it's the spirits of the place. Respect the grain and drink responsibly. To another exciting podcast of the Scotchy Bourbon Boys. Boys. Take two. <laughs> and here we go again. Let's hope that it just doesn't collapse on us again. But I am Tiny, joined by the alchemist, Alan Bishop, and Xavier here. Greetings, everyone. Thank you, Brother Alan, for being with us tonight. Yes, sir. Yeah, that was that was a uh, that was actually. So it took you it took you two takes, but that was the most professional intro I've been involved with on a podcast. The minute that that song ended, you were on that <laughs> intro. You were in there, you were animated, you were like fucking Bob Barger with the fucking hand signals and the whole thing, man. <laughs> well, I, it's it's kind of like when you like you said when you practice it, the the second time you usually can figure out cuz the whole the whole first time you're doing something you're trying to figure out what the fuck am I doing wrong? But then all then you do that that second time you're just like, oh my god, I better get this right. <laughs> right. Well, you're doing better than me on on uh, distiller stock because I'm I'm at that point and I love my show and I love interviewing distillers, right? But uh, I have my moments of like, Christy's all professional. She puts on the professional voice. She does the intro and she's like, "How are you tonight, Alan?" And I'm like, "Fuck everybody, <laughs> fuck all of them." But the, but I don't even want to be here right now. <laughs> I don't need to be a part of this. I'm not in a good mental space. It's Tuesday. Not tonight, obviously, but on Distillers Talk, it's Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, the last thing that I want to do at the end of my day is talk about fucking distilling, Christy. That's how I'm fucking doing. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what everybody, that's the real 
part of you that everybody loves. There's no doubt about it. It's just kind of like if you're, if you're not, it's not like you're not going to do it, but it's going to get raw. <laughs> or quick. yeah and it's it, it's not like you're gonna do a, a bourbon pursuit podcast where you where you just have to you know where you where you're trying to like what would you say mimic maintain mimic mimic them diplomacy. you're trying to mimic them <laughs> yes. maintain diplomacy is the best way to to say that uh i believe that uh there's an old time saying that's like you know if it's raw spit on it what the fuck you're welcome that's an awesome diplomacy i'll have to fucking remember that (laughs) right right that's what i got that's what you got well tonight we're gonna let you take the lead overall so what this this podcast i'm calling it alan bishop takes over so we want you to take over as much as you possibly can uh, we we have some questions, obviously, for you, but at the same time, let's just take this in a. We've already in the. And if we anybody, don't, we'll think of some. If yeah. anybody was is going to be listening to the, you know, here, they they got to check out the YouTube part of it because the the prequel on that is fucking fantastic tonight. That was pretty cool. Yeah, it was. I will I will start off by saying that uh, anything that I say tonight is not my responsibility. It is the responsibility of two gingers from Texas, the Licorice Brothers, and uh, you know, being irresponsible enough to bottle things at 127.5 proof, even if they are delicious. Uh, you know, whatever comes out of my mouth, you can you can certainly go to Robert Licorice and say that's your fault. That's your fault. I'll, it's your fault that Alan Bishop is the way that he is. I'll make so, sure. I'll make sure to fucking go tell him that on Facebook tomorrow. You, yeah, you, <laughs> you can you. message him tonight and tell him that if you want to. It doesn't <laughs> hurt my feelings. He, he knows. I love them motherfuckers. They're, they're so good. They're so good at what they do. Right. I mean, you can't. You can't. You can't take that away from them. That's for sure. But uh, you know, I didn't. When you brought this up as a possibility of uh, hey, you lead the show and all that stuff, I was like, I should probably sit down and have some sort of roadmap. And because I am irresponsible and lazy i did no such thing so uh i feel like this is my opportunity obviously to get to to question you guys a little bit and to talk about um just whatever whatever comes to mind so uh the first things first that i wanted to kind of bring up uh something cool coming up that people can look forward to or or maybe you look forward to it like a car crash you know maybe not so much a, a celebration but uh the two of you were a part of something that's really close to my heart, which is a documentary that Bo Cumberland, a fantastic filmmaker, particularly in the realm of moonshine distillers, um, and also some bourbon films as well. Uh, something that Bo and I have worked on for the past year. You guys came to the second filming session where I went out of my way to destroy Bo Cumberland's dreams. So Bo Cumberland's dreams were... To have a film about my distilling history, my background, and what I'm doing now, and uh, you know, sort of, sort of present that as documentary evidence of my existence for the future, and and my brain automatically, when I hear those sort of things, goes to, how can I fuck this up, right? <laughs> and so the best way to fuck it up is to get a bunch of good people together, hang out, drink, um, distill a little bit, uh, maybe illicitly, and uh, just have a good time. And Bo Cumberland 
I'll be damned if he didn't pull at least a one plus hour documentary of really good stuff out of what should have been two shit shows worth of non-information, <laughs> right? Uh, almost, uh, you know, you, you take the worst reality show in the world and amplify it by 10, maybe even jackass level. That's really what we presented to Bo Cumberland. And Bo Cumberland was able to find the spirit of what we were getting at and to uh, capture that. And it's going to be released as a, a full-length documentary. I don't know what platforms yet, but it is coming. You two are both a part of that. And, uh, you know, the day that we brought you guys in, you guys became part of this family, this tribe of um, sarcastic assholes that I've been cultivating for the past six or seven. Uh, that, that's Mr. Sarcastic Asshole to you. And don't forget it. 100 million percent. And we we are proud to call you Mr. Sarcastic Asshole because we do not discriminate. We're much like uh, awesome. we're much like Eagle Fang Karate and, <laughs> uh, you know, in, in the whole Karate Kid universe that we accept everyone as long as they kick ass. There you go. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thinking back. It's kind of like I, I did the interview, which uh, I hope there's some of that on there. But I know the moment that he was that he was filming me. It had to be about we had been there what since ten o'clock in the afternoon. We were ten in the morning. Yes, they, they, yes. yeah, ten in the morning, ten <laughs> o'clock in the afternoon. That's a fucking thing. By the way, by the way, I keep telling that story. What am I drinking right now? What am I pouring? You see what's out there? What do you want us to pour in our spirit of French lick Glencairns? Oh man, I am uh, I'm a, I'm a little torn here. So um we ain't making no more weeder, so that's a good one to start with, but let me let me let me say this first. Solomon Scott has not yet been released as a mainstream product. That is the big one for this year. We went the opposite of every other company out there. Everybody else was releasing young rye. We released young weeded bourbon and went the opposite on rye and went to 5 years. So right now, Solomon Scott is – do you have that out there? What do you got there? Is that wait, Lost wait. River? It's right there, Solomon Scott. Yep, yep, there you that go. That was that barrel pick from Coons. Beautiful. Yes, so that's where I would start because that's where my heart is right now wait, is Solomon I Scott. Wrong, I picked the wrong one. Yeah. This is it. Nope, I'm going the wrong fucking nope. way. There, there you go. Fucking there look. Go. Don't look at the screen, you dick. I'm just <laughs> – I'm like going in the it's wrong. Like, it's direction. like your other left. Yeah. So <laughs> let's let's get that baby. Uh, here you go, a, Mr. Yeah, of course. Push. So that right there, and the and Thank the bottled you. and bond apple brandy. Those are my two big deals for this year that I'm I'm proud of. I'm behind. I can't wait to get them out there. Um, the apple was supposed to be back out back in September, and we couldn't get bottles and we couldn't get label approval. Believe it or not, you know all things government being efficient as they are uh kind of fucked us on september october november december the big months for apple brandy and rye whiskey um so this year there will be a five-year-old bottled and bond solomon scott rye whiskey this is an old school rye whiskey this is basically the same mash bill they use at mount vernon we switched out the uh the traditional distiller's malt uh for a little bit of victory malt which is a little more biscuity uh, a little more dry this is a 60% rye, which differentiates itself from, obviously, MGP at 95 and or Kentucky Barely Legal. So Who do this we know that is... would like this? What? Who do we know that would like this? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Mrs. Xavier. Mrs. Xavier's a rye whiskey girl. I think, 
I think it's that she's she doesn't have a lot of taste in her, you know, like her taste buds aren't the most refined, but rye just wakes it the fuck up for her. Right. Well, and this, this being a 60% rye, you're still getting, you know, 30 plus percent corn. So you're still getting that corn sweetness, but the rye is the main player. And it's a, it's a very old school style. As I mentioned, it's somewhere in between. If you think of it historically, it falls somewhere in between what Monongahela rye in Pennsylvania would have been and what Maryland rye was. And from Virginia all the way down the Ohio Valley, that 60, 65% rye up until about 1815, 1816, was the in style of whiskey. And it's basically disappeared short of Mount Vernon. They're the only other place I know of making that recipe in particular. Ours is a little differentiated by the malt, et cetera, and the yeast. Um, but I think it presents something in rye whiskey that people who don't think they like rye whiskey, a lot of bourbon drinkers, I don't know if you guys you know, seen this or not, but a lot of bourbon drinkers seem to shy away from rye. And that's because they think that rye is that MGP 95, right? They think it's that cherry cough syrup, that dill, that sort of thing. Yeah. This doesn't have that. This this no. is like apricot. And if there's cherry there and there is cherry there, it's like maraschino cherry. It's very cocktail oriented. It's very round. Yeah. It's very fatty. It's very sweet. I'm getting, um, this would make I'm a getting, great whiskey highball. I'm, uh, I'm getting uh, chalk, a little bit of dark, dark chocolate, too on it mm-hmm. it's like really rich it's there and then it, i get that when you said the a- a- apricot and then also the cherry there's a little bit of that but then i'm getting that i'm not getting a wood or leather or tobacco it's not at all it's definitely dark i'm definitely you know, getting no the cherry dark chocolate getting the cherry big time you're likely not getting any dill and you're likely not getting any anise flavor no, no there's nothing there's nothing green i don't want to spit it out my, I, I just, the, the, the rise I don't like have that dill, but it also has, I, the only way I can describe it is it's celery. It's the green earthy celery. That and it just, I just yes. don't, I, I, I mean, people like that. I mean, I understand people like it, but for me, it's like, it's just, I just want to give it the fucking finger. Let me tell you, I just don't want anything to do with it. It's so horrible in my mouth. I'm probably going to piss a lot of people off. To me, celery tastes like you're eating a solid form of pond water. So if this had if this had anything right similar after, to celery in it, I'd be spitting it out. This right is pretty after good. Jolie took I a like piss this. In it. I, well, I don't know about that, but I can tell you it's bad news. But this is good. That's how I am with MGP rye. Um, I love MGP because, and I've said this on your show before, they kept lights on for all of us Hoosier distillers when nobody else could get anything going, right? Right. But that MGP style of rye, which was designed for blended whiskeys, and some people are using it right nowadays, like Penelope. I think right? Bullet uses it, it exclusively, yes. don't they? And it, it, it just, it has to me, you know, growing up in a trailer park, being white trash, et cetera. <laughs> it's off-brand fucking Robitussin, oh. <laughs> and I will never be able to get past that I, ever. Yeah, you can't get once once it's like in when you get that taste, it's just kind of like it's not it. You got it for people to produce a good rye for me. It's like you can always tell there are people who are working at it. 
but that just yeah. standard ride that they're rushing and it's too green. It's like, but even even fucking Willet, I, I don't like Willet. But the the worst I ever had was Heaven's Door, which then I found out they were MG, and it might not have been ninety five five. Now. The fucking most insane thing, though, is is we go down to Dayton Barrel Works, me and Xavier, with uh, Bill Hockett, and his rye is 90 fucking 5 rye, and it don't taste like 95 rye. How the fuck does he do that? Because he's got a good palate, and he's going so through he, barrels. He goes through right? like a shit ton of barrels that he buys, and then he buys them. Then he finds what he likes. Makes his own and puts what he because it was damn. It was I, yeah, I, that was I, great. And the other great rye we had was the Luca Mariano rye. Well, that was that was for you. Well, <laughs> to me, that I thought Luca was outstanding. Was I okay. thought it was outstanding. Yeah, and you guys and I know there's tons of hype around it. And then you guys know I'm not a hype guy. That I hate the industry and I hate all the secondary market shit and all that stuff. But have you guys had the three chamber Leopold? No, and you talk about it. No. Now, Guys, I, I, bet I will tell you up front, I will tell everyone who listens to this show right now. I have said many times across multiple platforms that I've never found a bourbon or a rye I would pay more than $100 for. And the reason for that is bourbon and rye were always meant to be blue-collar drinks, right? They should be working people drinks. Leopold Brothers Three Chamber, as a distiller, is the one American whiskey that I would pay whatever the fuck Leopold wants for it, not only because it's good and not only because it's differentiated, but because it shows his passion and his drive. And guys, literally to, to take the amount of money it took to get Vendome to build that three chamber and them not even really understanding the engineering and for him to, to study that and put the time and effort into it, that alone is worth more than a hundred dollars to me. But I, that aside, it is just goddamn good whiskey, and it's one of those whiskeys that you go back to and you're like, every time I taste this, there's something different. There's something unique, but there's also something sort of familiar about it, right? It takes you back to a place. Maybe maybe genetic memories involved from our ancestors all being drinkers, right? Where you're like, there's something here that's new, but it's also it's kind of tugging at your heartstrings. It reminds you of things from when you were younger. Yeah. Or it reminds you of being, you're, it makes you, you're part of something bigger than you, you know, and that's yeah. what, that's, well, I've said I, that So many what you're times. saying, what I should do is go back and have some Southern comfort to remember that time when I was, <laughs> and I haven't had it since, but I should just fucking remember that one more time, like revisit it. Cause I, I, I won't even. No, know. we're not saying that at all. <laughs> As, as, a, as a Hoosier, I will say it, and here's why. Uh, you know, millions of dollars pouring into the riverfront from a company that I'm not fond of their products, but, uh, you know, the more Hoosiers you can hire into the stilling industry, <laughs> the happier I will be. All right. And so, you know, my, my soul is for sale on tiny increments, but only to the highest bidder and also the bidder that provides the most Hoosier credibility along with the most Hoosier jobs. So uh, I have to, I have to, I have support to support your industry. Yeah, you're supporting bit. your industry right there. All right. <laughs> uh, you know what? That my next, uh, the next fucking podcast, I'm going to have some Southern comfort on and I'm going to remember what that taste brings back from my childhood. <laughs> you get, you get one of them Sazerac boys on the show and bring me on and me and him will have a real conversation. <laughs> It'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so 
getting back to where we were five minutes ago with uh, rye whiskey, but no, not with the rye whiskey, but with the with what Bo was doing. There was that moment at three o'clock after ten a.m. drinking, and and everybody brought. I, I was was the Leopold there? Did they? Someone bring that that day? I believe it was on the table. That, if you remember, uh, that that was a, a six foot folding plastic table, yeah. and there wasn't a bare spot on that table. Nope. It kind of had a little I mean, bit of a and then, sway back to and it. And then Kevin Kevin brings fucking bookers. He's like, I brought three bookers. I love bookers, and we were talking bookers. Now we can talk bookers, and I'm just like, and he's like, try this one, try this one. So around three o'clock, between the distillate that we were sampling and the all the different bourbons. I had my moment, which told me to basically reel it the fuck back in. Otherwise, I'm going to get myself in trouble. But it was completely recorded by Bo as I took like five minutes to circle around, falling down on the ground, trying to get back up, not really being able to then being helped up. And then the rest of the day I was totally cool because I backed it off. But I know he recorded that. And somehow I feel that is going to be a moment in this documentary. <laughs> so so it will be. I knew uh, it your, interview. your interview was, by the way, one million percent fucking perfect on, on point. <laughs> and so one of the things that I'd forgotten about, because we're all drinking when we're doing these things, we're all, you know, in the heat of the moment. We're trying to keep up with stuff. You know, there's a still running trying to do a mash, trying to talk to everybody, all that stuff about, I think it was two forty-five in the afternoon. You'll see me on the video. I make a pronouncement to you guys. You guys are all getting a little drunk at the time, getting a little loud and a little rowdy. And I said, it's two forty-five in the afternoon in the woods in Southern Indiana. You're fucking drunk. Where else would you rather be? <laughs> Those next 15 minutes are fun and integral. And I don't, I don't know how much of this will be documented for sure in the video, but the part you might be forgetting, Jeff, oh, and I, I want to point this out because it's fucking great. <laughs> and I've not seen the footage, but I know Bo has it because he filmed every bit of it, is that we all got together at one point and I had a jar of moonshine. And I very rarely talk about, you know, my family's moonshining background, but I had a jar of moonshine that was based on my grandfather's recipe. It was one of the last jars that I made when I was a kid, literally made this jar when I was like 16 years old. We're passing it around in a circle. We're all drinking from it, right? Lots of weird things happen in that moment. And then not all of those will be on film, <laughs> thankfully, for all of us, right? Right. Uh, but but what definitely has to be on film and be at least in the uh, the B-roll, the credits, is what I like to refer to as the killing of Jeffrey Moeller. <laughs> fucking was. Which was the jar went in two circles, and it came back around to me, and everybody was like, oh, drink it, Alan, just fucking shoot it. And I was already plastered, and I was like, I got to get through this day. And I was like, Jeff Moeller. There is about a quarter of this jar left. Can you clear it? <laughs> he said, and brother, you do. wanted that thing. Oh, you wanted that thing like I never saw anybody go to drink. <laughs> I did. And after you were done with it, you literally proceeded to the slowest fall. <laughs> I, I, a slow motion fucking, fall. I, yeah, yeah, I forgot I, no, all no, about that. I was, I, even when I was falling, <laughs> it was like fucking, I'm like going, is Bo doing something to me? I'm falling in slow motion. And then the, I kept expecting the, the ground to come up and come up and come up. And it wouldn't do it. And then all of a sudden, I was on the ground. 
And then I got, I was trying to get back up and it wasn't working. Some people helped me. And then I was all right the rest of the time. I wasn't, yeah, I, I kind of sat in the chair, got my, my bearings. It didn't go too Yeah, and, 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 and less than, well, heck, less than, less than 45 minutes, you were like, you nothing happened. Right, but I remember yeah, that moment. Yeah, you were fine. And I remember well, Bo. And, and what's funny, and I don't know that the footage will reflect this because I'm not, again, I'm not seeing that footage, but, and this is just from memory, right? And I was super drunk too. Uh, I remember being very super drunk in front of you, you hitting the jar, doing the slowest fall of all time, and me being too drunk, I was trying to reach out to grab you as you fell, but it was too slow. It was just... Yeah, you're, and you're making the motions like, like the old $6 million man. I mean, normally, you're the hardest and the fastest, right? I just, I remember that spin. I guess it's something... When you work at a recycling plant, you always figure out if you can start to spin and move around that the the ground doesn't come up as fast, and then you're just kind of it's kind of like a soft landing instead of just straight down. <laughs> <laughs> what, was, what was great is after that you were completely fine, other than the only thing that I heard you say like the rest of the day, as far as like any sort of like drunken commentary was for about the next 30 minutes, and I've been here, and but I've been in worse positions. I've been laying in mud puddles because I tried to jump <laughs> over a fire drunk, right? Uh, you were sitting in a chair, and you said, you said this twice that I remember. You go, somebody just fucking shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. And I don't know if Bo got that, but that, but that was a moment, right? Yeah, because I felt embarrassed to, to, to no one else was falling. <laughs> it's just like, just fucking. That's, that's the beauty of doing these things is, is there are moments in time, right? And we only capture, we only capture so much of it. Right. And it's not, it's not a bad thing. And I've been in worse places. And, and that's the beauty of having a tribe of people, which is what this documentary is going to be all about. Right. What, yep. what is beyond the whiskey industry? Like when you make friends in this industry, what do they become? Can you be vulnerable with one another? Can you, can you have those moments We've all had those moments, and certainly Bo has plenty of moments of me way more drunk than I should be on film, right? But it was with the right people at the right times. Maybe there's some entertainment value to that. And I don't know that anybody outside of our group will find this film funny. I suspect that they will because I suspect that a lot of people are going to watch this film. They're going to look at it and go, man, I wish that I had friends like that that I could hang out with a couple times a fucking year, right? And have a moment that I will never forget based upon purely friendship and the connection that we made in this industry, which normally those, those connections in this industry are very tangential. They're, they don't mean a whole lot, a lot of times, but when people really get along in this industry, it becomes family, right? And that's why you guys got to come to my family farm, be a part of this thing, you know, we got to share a lot of cool moments together that day, and that's going to be recorded on film for all of time. We can look back on it when we're 60, 70 years old and go, God damn, that was a fun day. Oh, when I'm 61. Yeah, when I turn 61, I, I can look, wait, I can look back 80, on 90. I can look back <laughs> on this tomorrow when I'm 61. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get I, I no, totally get what, where you're coming from. No, right. but the whole industry as a whole, okay, even, even the families of the bigger distilleries still understand what 
you understand the families. I'm not talking about the corporate ownership because right. I find that those families or the those consultants that have large one thing you need is to do your craft. Somebody has to have some fucking money because it's expensive. And then yep. to get through what you've gotten through at the Spirit of French, like now you've been there for six. Your shit's now to the point where you no longer have to buy someone else's stuff. You're putting out what you laid down in there, and now that's a going forward process that if you keep laying it down, you never have to worry about it. Now, when you when other things happen and you and you go through that process, that is a very stressful process for any distillery because, one, you have to put out a good product, but you deep down know exactly what that product is isn't going to be the same as what you're putting down and you're going to put down something better and there's no doubt about it. Okay. But that transition and there's going to be some people who love what you put down and even though it's better, they're going to be like, fuck you. <laughs> you changed it on me. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Because there's certain amount of people, a majority of them on the people like consistency but at the same time, when you're doing it at a craft distillery, you get less of those people because they're just, they're looking for that new experience. If you want consistency, well, you, you, you could buy you, it from Beam. I will tell you that you, you worded that in such a way that that was, that was an excellent question. And, and, and inferences being what they are, right? Um, the truth of the matter is that I don't, as a craft distiller, I don't worry too much about the future because I come from a home distilling background. And so I'm always researching home distilling constantly, right? I'm on fucking home distilling forums. I'm reading what the guys in home distilling are doing. And let me tell you guys, uh, what you've seen so far from craft distillers is not shit compared to what you will see 10 years from now from craft distillers that came from the home distilling background. The only fear that I have in my life that's not really even a fear is that what, five, 10 years from now, I have to compete with myself? Well, I know what I've already done. I know what works. I know what doesn't work. And I can move beyond that, right? And maybe it doesn't attract the same people, but it certainly attracts people one way or the other, especially if you can be real about what you're doing, how you're doing it, the why of how you're doing it, et cetera, right? Um, I will also say that I talk, a, I'm a lot like Chicken Little, right? I talk a lot of shit, but I would never talk shit about like Freddie No, for example, right? He's he's doing some very cool shit. You guys have got to hang out with the family. You've got to you got to be there where things happened in that family. Freddie is a great fucking distiller. He understands the background and the history of his family. And even though they don't any longer, obviously, as a family, own the distillery, they own the legacy and he doesn't want to fuck that up. And that's fucking cool. Yeah. I will take that over top of any distillery that comes along with big corporate backing nowadays that, you know, it's just about, you know, whatever their legacy is. If there's no family members involved, why do they give a shit? Right. Yeah. One way or the other. But you have a you have a, a major distillery that still has people from the original family involved in it. They're there to protect that legacy and they're there to create new traditions for the future um so i i, I hope that kind of covered yeah. both those bases for right you, one way or the other but uh, uh for craft distillers here's the truth i'm 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 competing with myself and i'm competing with a bunch of home distillers many of whom truthfully and this in my opinion this is the future of the distilled spirits industry in the united states many of these craft distillers who will become legal 
are going to push the envelope in ways that you've never thought about. There are things that I read every day on these these home distilling forums that blow my mind as a distiller and as a historian. And I'm looking at these things going, fucking, that's genius. And you know what? It's guys that love what they do and they're playing around in their garage on Sunday, right? They're literally running a still while watching Ozark, you know? Yeah. And they're just that damn good. They have good ideas. And you know why they have good ideas? Because there was no tradition burdening them in any way to say, you can't do this, right? And if you if you have that mindset of nobody can tell me what I can't do, and then you can find somebody to back that up with money, the world is your playground. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, like you said, when you were talking about Freddie and Fred, they're always they're, they they have to fight for what they're doing to keep it the best they possibly can. And then you then you they throw down that new distillery, which is gives Freddie ability to create some of the some of what he wanted to do that he never could that was almost impossible yeah. to create when you're trying to build when you're trying to distill six billion gallons of fucking Jim Beam that's set up for that so you know they build that other yep. distillery and now he's got a playground to play in and he is do the thing. so involved with all the other distillers it's kind of like He's he's young, but he's not. There's no closed mindness on him. He's open, and he wants to he wants to learn from everybody. And I, I will also say this too, and I think that Freddie would say the same thing. Um, I take it as a win for craft distilling that Freddie went to bat to have a craft distillery at Jim Beam, 100%. and that Jim Beam was willing to invest that money into a quote unquote craft distillery. Right. That means that they are now paying attention to what we're doing. And I don't think anybody said that up to this point. I don't even think Freddie has said that up to this point. But the fact that Jim Beam is paying enough attention at this point to what craft distillers are doing, that they are willing to put several million dollars into a craft distillery on campus is a win for craft distilling. That means that at the very least, we're on the radar. We're on the radar with the big guys. Right. Yeah. And they realize that things are changing. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And truthfully, when it comes down to it, uh, I love the idea of having a great big company with a bunch of money behind craft distilling. And I love the idea of having somebody that's passionate about craft distilling as he is to to be the, the voice of reason behind that. Why would we want to do these things? Why do we want to research these things? Easily, and you guys know this, Jim Beam could focus on one or two labels and still make more money, uh, you know, and in, in, in bulk off those one or two labels and all the craft distilleries in the world put together, yeah. um, you know, but they're choosing to go down that path because they see how things are changing, right? It's almost well, they could see it's, the market. It's a new There's world, a market. But it's also a throwback. Yeah. So, well, I, I just know some of the stuff they're producing, even if you look at what's happening. Uh, now the the thing that sucks about Buffalo Trace craft distilling is that when they produce it, it costs you a fucking billion fucking dollars. Like OFC, you know, Old Fire Copper, it's like that. That retails at two thousand dollars. And granted, and like you said, is there a bourbon on the planet that you know <laughs> that's just that's distilled that's worth two grand? And yes, they give you the packaging, the marketing. 
that, you know, and they're, and what you're buying is you're not just paying for the bourbon. You're paying for the presentation and the whole thing and the rarity. But uh, what they're doing with uh, what they're bringing back um, Old Taylor, they're doing a, and they actually dug up those, those fermenting yeah. tanks. And they're actually, you know, you got Harlan there fermenting in one of those tanks. And he's basically producing a small amount of it. And when it hits the market, whether someone like me will be able to taste it is a whole different story. But it's kind of cool as fuck. And it's a craft It's craft distillery. But they're so big that it costs so much. But, like, the regular craft distillers like yourself are doing similar things and producing just as good a whiskey. But at a pretty reasonable price compared to $2,000, right? For, for a fraction of their their production budget and zero dollars worth of marketing, myself and Joe Lee Kasperzak and Sean White built Spirits of French Lick out of literally nothing, right? And and I should also be honest here, even though I give Beam credit for what they're doing, um, I don't think all those companies are equal, in my opinion. Uh, so so you know, a company with Fireball. And a lot of cheap vodka is not the same, in my opinion, as as a company with an asset like Freddie No. Um, obviously, because what do they really care? You even take um, uh, these are things that keep me unpopular and keep me out of the mainstream bourbon. Uh, by the way, take uh, Brown Foreman, right? What yeah. do they give a shit about anything? They could lose everything they own, short of Jack Daniels, and guess what? They're going to be just fine, right? right? It's not going to hurt them one way or the other. Um, and, and I agree with you. It is cool to see that they have that Sazerac has supported the excavation of that old distillery. And it's there for us all to go see. And they're going to do product in it. And, you know, they, they did, you know, they, they luckily, thankfully for all of us true distilling history fans, they gave Nicholas Lacruente, uh, you know, open access to the site to interpret it in the right way. That is cool, and that comes along with money. But that is, for them, that is what two percent of their marketing budget a year, oh, if it's that. Yeah, it's but right. But you got to look at like Harlan. You got to like give him the credit because he's fighting for that kind of shit. To like, obviously, he's giving them the direction because the regular the people who are supporting it, you know, said they don't fucking understand the fucking direction. But he's saying if we fucking do this, but then they're going. Well, then we can charge this. And it's just like, you wish that he'd fight for, you know, that it wouldn't be, you know. But they do fight for the regular product to be reasonably priced. And it really is if you could get it while you stand in line for 14 hours. And so so then I I had to presume this is one reason that you guys continuously put up with my shit and having me on the show and being a sponsor and all that stuff, right? Money aside. (laughs) Controversial moment number one. Here we go. This will be fun. And I'm sure that there are bourbon geeks that will lose their shit over this. But I'm going to say it because it's a lived experience, right? It's something I went through. Yes. So Harlan. All right. Nothing against Harlan Wheatley. I don't know the gentleman. I have met him one time, and the one time I met him, the literal experience that I had with him was an interruption in a conversation between two other distillers from another major distillery that is still family-owned, and you can fill in the blanks, where he literally bought, brought his cell phone over during the bourbon festival and said, 
look what I can do with my cell phone as far as I can monitor everything at the distillery on my cell phone. I never want to ever have a moment where I can look at my cell phone and go, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to be there. I don't have to think about it, right? It's right here on my cell phone. If something goes wrong, I can fix it on my cell phone. That, to me, is not craft. And that's nothing against him, right? That makes his well, right. life easier. Well, and that, 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 That's the problem that I have with the industry overall is the art, the spirituality, the realness of it, those moments of being in the distillery and going, fucking something doesn't sound right. Something doesn't smell right. This guy that's on my team that I work with every day, he's not acting right. Maybe there's something going on in his personal life. Those are the things that are lost in the industrialization of beverage alcohol, right? You're right. And, and that's, that's, that's nothing against Harlan whatsoever. Nope. That's just a moment that I had. And that's one of those very early moments that I had when I came into the industry. One of the things I've said consistently throughout my years in the industry is I had a lot of culture shock when I came in of, fuck, this is how this works. It's so much more crooked and so much more tangential and fucked up than anything that ever happened with my family in all the years that we were involved in illicit distillation. Right. Right. Controversial moment there. So, well, and, and overall, the way that I look at the industry now that I've been into a, I've seen all aspects of it. I've seen it from the pot still uh, at barrel barrel room distillery where he's mad where he mashes through a screen with a shovel, you know, he, mm -hmm. and he's, and, and he's not even coming close to getting the amount of, you know, do you, you, know, do you know where that idea came from? That came from distillers talk. You can go back and actually listen to that episode with that distiller. Well, he, that was <laughs> insane. I mean, it was splattering, splattering everywhere, but it was so down to earth. And then he talked about when he sells his stillage to the, to the farmer, the cows come running because they want to get drunk off their ass because he's left so much alcohol out on the plate, you know, because of how he's doing things. But it's old-fashioned. But then I've been at Bardstown Bourbon Company where they have complete control over the cooking and they can they can uh, and and the and what they're doing with the fermenting and they can control the yield by adjusting the temperature here. You know, there's a lot of control that you have now. What I found, especially in, in like the artistic field, you know, like just art in general, there used to be the painters and then there were people, then there was the impressionists and they were, they didn't paint real that once they met, they were painting with, with, you know, dots and splashes, you know what I mean? But, but as it evolves, what'll happen is this computerization at first, it, allows people who aren't skilled to produce a product that's okay. But then when you get somebody who's fucking an artist and you give them those tools, eventually that allows them to control everything for their art so they can make it fucking, they have more control over the art, but they understand the art. And then eventually you get people who fucking master that and then still use it as artistry, not technology. Same thing with computer art. You know, there was the computer yes. art aspect of it. But now it's, you know, Warhol, you gave him a computer in 1984 and that fucker still could produce art on the computer where everybody else was like, look what we could do. We can change this. And then it just became 
bastardized, but now you've got the, the computer art, artists that have had that tool for a long time creating fantastic art again. I, I think, you know, if, if the village idiot can have a word for a second, I, I think yeah. just as kind of an outsider that I've never distilled anything, I've certainly done my best to drink as much of it as possible, but um, I, I think there's a happy medium between the technology and the old-fashioned hands-on dedication. And I think where if you're, like, say you're doing one of your runs, and let's say that run is going to take 24 hours or even 18 hours or whatever or longer or whatever long period of time, sure, you want to be there when it starts and you want to be there when it ends, but if you walk away from it, you may you might want to be able to get an alert on your phone that something's going wrong at that moment you're not there as compared to coming back and finding out that there was a big oh shit moment and nobody caught it. I, I guess I think there's a way to harness the technology and preserve the art and and le- and leverage leverage the technology to enhance the art. But I think you're I think you're not wrong. And so here here's here's what I would say to to both of you. You're both right in general. In my opinion, this is just opinion stuff, right? This is all subjective. So it doesn't really matter to the average average listener what dumbass Alan Bishop Hillbilly's opinion is in Beacon, Indiana, or anybody's opinion, or right? My fucking opinion. Like, who the but, fuck but, am I? Opinions are like assholes. But, Everybody but, has example, one. A great example would be, uh, let's compare it to music, right? So um, one of the greatest lyrics written of all time is from Russia's Limelight. You know, all this machinery making modern music can still be open-hearted, right? It's really just a question of your honesty, right? And that's that's true. That that boils it down. It sure does. But let me me ask you, and this is, again, subjective. And, and, you know, no, no reply needed. It's subjective, right? It's whatever your opinion is. Would you rather listen to music created by a computer because it's a little a little more accessible? You don't necessarily have to have the artistic integrity to be a part of that, right? Maybe you have some composing ability, right? Or would you rather listen to an early Bob Dylan or Neil Young record where you can hear the guitar strings slide as he's struggling to get from whatever note he was at to whatever note he wants to get to. And maybe his voice cracks a little bit, right? There's a human element. There's a human element to everything that we do in technology that technology can't recreate. And that doesn't mean that the big companies don't have something worthwhile. I mean, I've said this uh, many times over and over again, the one Sazerac product that I will buy every time I have an opportunity to get it for a fair price, which you don't get in Indiana, is Sazerac rye, right? Because it's fucking good. I know what I'm getting every time. It's not great, but it's but it's good. It's good, right? And, and I've had many moments drinking that whiskey, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when it comes down to it, as a distiller, as as an artisan, I would rather taste a reflection of that person's day, that person's mindset, that team's day, that team's mindset, the mistakes they made sometimes are beautiful in and of their own accord. They take you to a place that maybe you don't expect to go. Now that can go two ways. 
craft whiskey can be really good or can be really bad, right? And very rarely is it just kind of, yeah. But it's enthralling. And that's something that I think that we miss out on in a lot of our consumerism nowadays. I will tell you that I think that, and I mentioned the show Ozark earlier, just to come back around. I think that the reason that shows like Ozark work is because they reflect things that are possibilities in real life. Life gets fucked up. Shit goes wrong. Right. Yeah, show. Every day. Every day <laughs> right? Sometimes it's fucking ugly. Yeah. But sometimes it's transcendent. To me, that is the beauty of distillation. And and, uh, and I'm not, again, I'm not knocking those big guys. I'm not knocking commodity whiskey because we wouldn't be where we are without them. But the thing that doesn't get mentioned very often is they wouldn't be where we are without farm distillers. Oh, farm sure. distilling and the tie to agriculture created this entire path for all of us. Right. right. No but, commodity whiskey is not related directly to the farm distillers of the 1800s. But but even today, that that marriage between the farms and the distillers is still fucking there. It's like it the the corn has to be distilled because if 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 let's just say they made fucking alcohol distilling again illegal. Correct. Just imagine what would happen to the fucking farmers. No, you would be because you'd go into it. But I'm just saying, just the, I, I still can't believe to this day that they have not properly fucking given whiskey its fucking due because this country was in the, the, the 1919 or 1920 when they fucking started, started. This country was in a fucking industrial, everything was going good. And from the time they put prohibition in, the government no longer was getting that tax money and they were fucking whatever. And then the farmers stopped farming as much corn, which led to the fucking dust bowl because they fucking couldn't sell their corn because they weren't distilling it. The whole country went to shit. And at one point it wasn't fucking the president who said, Hey, Let's put a pot, a chicken in every pot. It was fucking, they lifted fucking prohibition and the fucking amount of money they could make again allowed our government to fucking function again. I mean, well, it's just I'm, like insane that that's not in the history books. Yeah. Well, the creature from Jackal Island came from that, right? The, 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 the personal income tax came from the prohibition of liquor. A lot of people don't realize that, right? Um, you think about this for a second. This is this is one thing, one of those things that I've tried to bring to the forefront for the past several years. Uh, you have an economy like Southern Indiana that was based on apple brandy from apple farming, and these apples were not made for consumption out of hand. They were they were literally bred for apple brandy. And what happens when prohibition hits? These farmers all go. What the fuck do fuck we do? me. What the <laughs> fuck am I going to do? I got to go cut these trees down that my great-grandfather planted because they're not worth a fuck anymore for anything. I got to plant commodity crops, right, to be able to make up whatever difference that I can possibly make up. And it destroys an entire way of life, an entire culture. And then nobody has any fucking money to buy my crop. Yeah, absolutely, yes. No, that's, yes. That, that's just like, it's like you said, personal income tax, Fucking goes in in 1916, and, and then and then the most 
fucked up thing is, is that they catch Al Capone after Prohibition and put him in jail, not because of what he did. Oh, no, on taxes. Income tax evasion, yeah. It wasn't income tax evasion on liquor. It wasn't on drugs. It was he fucking bought dairies, milk dairies, and they fucking got him on him not paying his taxes on his goddamn dairy farms. So you, you, that's I'll, fucking I'll insane. This, and we're going with this is super deep stuff here, guys. And I'll, I'll tell you, I don't know how many listeners will follow, but I'm going to throw this out there as a previous home distiller. So the dairy thing that they got him on, not only was money laundering, but a lot of people don't understand this. The amount of dairy equipment, right, that is available at dairies that you are now buying for money laundering that is equitable to the ability to produce illicit alcohol is outstanding. And a good example of this is the very first big still I ever had was a 150-gallon milk tank, a stirator tank, right? Yeah. So not only are you money laundering, but you're taking advantage of the equipment that's available at dairies that's sanitary, that is of a certain quality, right? And and people miss those things because they don't know those things. They don't, they don't, they've not lived that life, right? When I when I've I've said this many times. So one of the things that really bothers me about living in a very quiet now suburb of Louisville, Kentucky, is this phrase, the bourbon life. Because no one can explain to me what the fuck that means. What does that mean? I live the bourbon line. They say well, you live mean? the bourbon it line. That you live in the backyard of bourbon. You go on bourbon tours. You drink bourbon on you know Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. What the fuck ever, guys. I have lived the moonshine life. Every dollar I have made for the past twenty years has, in some way, shape, or form, been tied to the production of illicit or legal alcohol in one way, shape, or form. So when I see these guys move in here, these people from the city trying to find a quiet life and they always want to change things, right? They don't want things to be the way they were. They want things to be the way they want them to be, the things they've tried to escape. And they say, I'm living the bourbon life. I'm like, you don't even fucking know. What you don't have any clue. You don't have any idea. I live this every day. My every waking breathing moment short of moments with my daughter and my wife are literally about distilling and that's the way that these old farm distillers before industrialization and before prohibition that's the way they lived their life you know they had the same problems that i do every day laying in bed trying to go to sleep going what am i going to do tomorrow where am i going to go with this how can i take this to the next level the next step how can i get attention how can i sell more product how can i make things better than what they are Right. And and I think that's the real difference between, let's say, craft distilling and big distilling is, you know, I'm not sure how many nights that Harlan Wheatley has to lay in bed and go, if I make the wrong decision tomorrow, my paycheck is fucked four years from now. Well, I don't think he you said, what I mean? but when I had him on the show, what he was worried about, what you could tell is that he didn't want to fuck up. A good the thing. legacy. The legacy. Yeah. He understands his importance, and they are doubling production. And we talked about well, if you've got warehouse, you know, H and warehouse C, one's producing Colonel Taylor, one's producing Blanton's. Okay, you've put in another still. How do you double production? Because you've spent a sh- 
millions of dollars marketing that it comes from right here. And he's like, well, I can guarantee you that we've looked into the research and we understand the, the logistics of where those are. We're putting them on the same angle, the same place, but we're building seven metal still houses. But that still right. doesn't guarantee that, that it's all going to taste like Blanton's, but it does guarantee it's all going to be Blanton's. And that's it doesn't guarantee consistency, but let me also say this, and I think you'll appreciate this, maybe an angle you've not thought of. So maybe those things do keep him awake at night, right? But what's the difference between him and a craft distiller? A, there's a lot of money in his company, and they keep selling fireball. Everything keeps going. And B, there's a whole bunch of people coming up to him every day going, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right, yeah. right? Because we've studied it, we've looked at it, we've got the science. Here's the graph. But he, he but deep okay. down, if if he's if he like, and he's been there for fucking ever, and he's still young. That's one thing that's a, a fucking amazing. And but right. he's been he associated fucking weird beard going on. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I think when you want, I think even though everybody's coming up to him and telling him it's going to be all right, I don't think he. I think he understands that he has to work his ass off to make everything all right. And if he doesn't, if he, you know, it's like when you have 400 employees and, and uh, Greg Schneider explained this when he was at Brown and Foreman, when they used to, you know, distill and they get a whole fucking run fucked up because the guy on third shift didn't fucking turn the pressure right while they were making the still. And, you know, it was, it's all, they all knew what to do, but he was five minutes late in turning the fucking valve. It fucked up the whole run, you know? Well, and, and, and I can see that side of it too, because, and this is the other thing, the beautiful thing about doing something like distillers talk with Christy Atkinson is talking to Pat Heist, right? So uh, when it comes to yeast in the United States, Pat Heist and I are probably, and Pat more than I am by far, are probably the only two, in my opinion, that really know, have some idea of what the fuck's going on because of practical experimentation, right? Yep. And one place where Pat and I disagree is the matter of, of uh, complete sterility, right? Pat's all about pure cultures. I'm all about, here's the way it was done back in the 1800s. Yeah. The difference between the two of us is the following. This is this is a real thing that people don't think about. Pat is all about purity. And the reason he's all about purity is because they have to make a lot of product every day. If Pat fucks up and he uses the wrong yeast variety, even if the flavor is better, he's losing 50 fucking barrels, right? If I fuck up, I'm losing five gallons. Yeah, but at the same time, if but if you fuck up, it might make it fucking better. Where even if it he fucks up and makes it better, he still has to deal with consistency. Yes. That's his. That's what Firm Solution says. We'll fucking Absolutely. come in, make sure you're consistent, and that's why the sterility is so important. Because when you're going into another place, saying, "Hey, this yeast strain, this is going to make it. This will consistently make your product before it's aged taste consistently the same." You know, but where you, you're pulling fucking for every single, not every single, but a lot of different brands of what you're doing. You're pulling them from different areas because you want them to be uniquely different. 
And yes, that's, and I, I agree one hundred percent. And that's 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 where I can see the utility of the industrial sort of mindset, right? And that's where I can I, that's the meeting ground that I can have, right? That's that's there's some understanding there, and that that's one of the things that Pat and I came to on on the show we did was that's the difference, right? And it, it, economically, I understand that, and from a quality perspective, he understands that. And that's why he's going to make certain suggestions, for example, if he's consulting with somebody and I'm going to make certain suggestions and those suggestions are going to change based on what their end goal is. Right. And that that's the real difference between craft distilling and, and commodity distilling. They're both you're you're all trying to make good alcohol. Nobody no, wants something. No, the industry. He, he consults on shit alcohol. I mean, I don't know what you but he fucking consults on yeast for fucking white claw. And that's about the biggest piss fucking shit I've ever tasted. Talk about why would you drink that? There's only one reason to drink White Claw, and that's to get fucked up. There's no enjoyment out of drinking it. (laughs) You're not wrong. You're not wrong. It's just like you drink bourbon, and you understand you get all these flavors and everything. You drink White Claw, and it's just like, what the fuck? I couldn't even finish it. I couldn't. I just was... It wasn't a drain pour. It was just like I can't finish this because I don't want this in my so, mouth. Yeah, I think I think you guys will appreciate this. Uh, I'm going to suggest that you uh, you try the weeder, and I will give you an example of a craft distiller's fuck up. Okay, so let's do it. And then we got to finish up with the. We're going to do the absinthe, but the, we'll do the weeder. You, you ready? Yes. I'm ready. Here is the weeder. And you're going to give us an example of the fuck-up. Because I, I can tell you, we just had the William, William Dalton, my bourbon of the year, with the French staves, the alchemist all over it. I really love the bottle and the labeling. Good. And Good. Uh, just the caramel. I mean, it's just like, it's like eating a Milk Dud, not made by Milk Duds, but made by the best caramel and... Milk chocolate maker in the world. That's what that tastes like to me. <laughs> so Thank you. this in particular, uh, and I'm going to throw this out there, Whiskey Advocate, when we first started up, this actually got us an 86 at Whiskey Advocate, which for a very young craft distiller at two years old was fantastic. Um. This is one of those weird things where state laws play into – what you can do and what you can't do. And so what had happened was there were a number of, and I'll just mention the company now because we're a few years out. We no longer have this in production. I had an opportunity to buy a bunch of Wyoming whiskey barrels. And what had happened was when Steve Nally went to Wyoming, he basically had tuned his still, his column still, to produce what they had produced in Kentucky, not taking into account the environment in which the barrels were aging. And so the barrels were a little bit off. There was a lot of banana ester, which is sort of a a sign that there's a lot, there's more heads there than what you want. And if you were in a traditional Kentucky and or Southern Indiana environment, it'd be fairly easy to blow those heads off through maturation uh, in the warehouses if the warehouses got warm enough. So when I tasted this whiskey, there was nothing wrong with it. It just needed a little time under heat. So we bought 
$100,000, which to most big companies would be nothing, right? Right. But to a startup, mm-hmm. it's a lot of money. You, you, you must know, have done a, a lot it, of uh, dancing to get that money right into that. But they knew they, they you needed it. Yes. And so at the time that we bought it, we were still under the impression that we'd be able be able in Indiana to buy whiskey, rebottle it, and then sell it, uh, just like multiple states do. So we were going to brand this as our whiskey that was not made by us but was matured by us and sell it. The day that we got the barrels in, the Indiana State Legislature came back to us and said that anything that went in your bottle – had to be 60% yours. <laughs> right? The day that so the barrels came in. Distiller. Yes. Me being a young distiller and being like, uh, we can't bottle that on its own anymore. And it's $100,000 worth of bourbon was one of the scariest moments of my life. Because that now means that we have to at least set on this bourbon for two years to be able to blend it with our own straight bourbon. And so what we did is we basically took the same mash bill, let's say 70%. 70% corn, 20 wheat, 10% malt. We switched out the traditional malt for caramel malt. Uh, we double pot distilled it. It was then aged in number two char- charred oak barrels, medium plus toast for the heads. We then blended 60% our two-year-old with 40% Wyoming. It got a really good rating in Whiskey Advocate. It got a lot of very positive early reviews, right? But... The truth of the matter is, when I taste that whiskey to this day, and this is why it will never be reproduced one way or the other, and most people don't pick up on this, but as a distiller, I can taste the break between the column still and the pot still whiskey. Wow. That's crazy. That just shows your skill. So you're telling me, so you're telling me, I'm going to ask you a question and then you tell me if I'm right. So the front end is caramely and a little bit, there's a little corn and a, there's some caramel and some corn sweetness. Okay. And then Mm -hmm. it goes to the back end of your palate and it becomes a little bit, I would say there's a little bit of. Ethanol mixed with a little bit of oak, and it's not sweet. So, is that the break? Yes. Yes, one hundred percent. Okay, because that's what I I get. I get such front end sweetness, and then you expect it to do what a weeder does, and it's still it's smooth. But the, the what 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 as it breaks, the finish is kind of a little bit bitter. But it's not what you would expect from the front end on your palate because usually if you get a sweet front end palate, you get a little bit of spice and then it come, you'll pick up a flavor, but you're just picking up a lot of um, a little bit of oak and a little bit of ethanol on like the finish aspect. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's where those two whiskeys break at, right? And that's you can blend successfully and we certainly potentially could have done a better job. Now, granted the 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 appeal of that to the market in general seemed to work but that bottle will always bother me because maybe man maybe it's psychological because it's not all mine right but i think if you can pick up on that then i think most people can 
right? Not most people, no, because because not most. I mean, when you're talking about most people, most people are not looking. I mean, the percentage of people that we deal with, you know, you know what I. But like you talk about, like the Kentucky, like most people fucking walk in and they buy Jack Jack Daniels or Jim Beam, and that's it. They're not looking. Yeah, for they're not looking for the fall. So, right. so when you start convincing, what's what the huge market that I really think that's going to come with the craft distillers and which has been helping is the women's market because most women are not. They fucking were turned off by Jack Daniels and Jim Beam. You don't find a lot of women. You. you Maybe Christy would fucking do Jim Beam shots with you, but but there's not a lot of women like her. You know what I mean? She understands her palate and everything, but she still will fucking push back probably anything, I think, based off of meeting her and what. But overall, women, that market is so huge right now because they're so enthralled in wine, but they understand their palates. And then when you turn them on, like the few tastings I've done with couples... The women are all like drinking wine before and the guys are like all into bourbon. But when you start telling them they love high proof, by the time you're finished, the women are way more fucking interested in the bourbon because they fucking loved it than the guys ever were. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with that. It's a huge market that's going to drive people with with the palate aspect, you know, of, of what. Now, there's some people that have limited palates that are always searching but there's still that 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 general population that when I go on Wednesdays to see what they got, they got a case of this, they got a case of that, they got a case of this, okay? The high-end stuff, you know, whatever. But then they've got 12 cases of Jack Daniels and 8 cases of Jim Beam back there and like 35 cases of Tito's. It's, right. You know, it's like it's a bourbon boom, but it still doesn't even come close to what Clear Spirits sell. I mean, the clear spirits are now 80% and 20 where they used to own 95% of it. Right. Right. Well, that's what, that's actually one of the interesting things with the weeder, for example. So we released that at the same time that we released the two-year-old Lee Sinclair. And one of the guys that used to be involved in the distillery would have argued that Lee Sinclair at two years did what it did because women want a sweeter spirit. I don't think that's true. What I think is that women could taste something in that Lee Sinclair two-year-old that 90-plus percent of men couldn't pick up on. Now, they can pick up on it when it gets to four years old, but the Lee Sinclair whipped the weeder's ass to such an extent that I don't even have a bottle of the two-year-old Lee Sinclair, right? It's been discontinued now, Mm -hmm. and probably we should bring it back and do something with it, but we won't. Um I mean, it, it literally, you could put Lee and the weeder in front of one, in front of a woman and a man, and the man 90% of the time is going to go for that weeder, and the woman's 90% of the time going to go for the Lee Sinclair. And again, I don't think it has anything to do with the sweetness. It's the perception of flavor that women have and the way they're now driving the industry. Well, for instance, what uh, Bill Hockett... It, I got to taste some of what he's put down and we, so did uh, Xavier here and it was nine months old. Mm-hmm. It was already, in my opinion, you could fucking sell it and not get right. ripped on. That's so if you put the right shit in the barrel, 
you know, but now I will, will have to say is that after when I first started out and the first thing, the first samples you ever sent us up was the Lee Sinclair two year. And then mm -hmm. the next, then we got the bottled and bond the next year, you know, and the two year for me opened up different bourbons like that bourbon didn't have to taste like what bourbon was you were told what bourbon was tasted tasted like so there was an aspect of the grain there was some yeasty bread fresh break bread aspects to it that matured when you went to the bottled and bond where you got now you got a little bit more caramel so now you're looking like more like a cinnamon bun you get that yeast but you get that and that becomes more what you expect in a classic bourbon you know what i mean you're getting the grain but you're also getting the what 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 was there whereas the two year was pretty much like you were making bread with bread dough and yeast and bread and that's what was there with just maybe a little bit of caramel but I have to say that opened up an aspect where I felt like what you were doing was still bourbon and you still can get e equally fucked up. But it didn't taste young to me because I've tasted some young bourbons and that's not what young bourbon tasted like. You had a lot more grain. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And I think that's that's maybe that's the funny little thing is that's the difference between with a young distillery, you know, sourcing and blending versus here's a hundred percent what the vision actually was. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's, there's, and again, there's nothing wrong with that weeder. It's just a very different style to well, everything we've done since then. What, yeah. but, but as a distiller, that's something you have to actually accept because that's one thing that's so fantastic about distilling is because in the end, it's like you just wish you could put down and whatever and you come out with the same taste in every single fucking barrel and it wasn't a hard thing. But it, but like you said, with Freddie, you got to – Freddie and Fred, you got to respect because as they're tasting 10,000 barrels mixed together and they they have to have in their memory what their goal is so that, yes, that those people that have that consistency – it, but you know so much stuff like lately has been tasting so much better i just think that the climate is getting better in kentucky indiana wisconsin and even o ohio where it's getting warmer so that the bourbons are actually starting to fucking take advantage in other words of global global warming you know you hear all about but it th that's a good thing for the midwest as far as making bourbon and then it's also a good thing for kentucky because their shit even gets more caramely with the hotter when you know and they still get enough winter so let me ask well, this I'll, question i'll throw this i'll throw this out there for you and i think yes. you'll enjoy this so um another controversial moment when it comes to to me in indiana at the very least so um two states that i think are really really where they need to be at to position themselves in the global marketplace, Colorado and Texas, and but which is fucking cool. Okay, it's cool, and I know Texas whiskey is not for everybody. I get it. I understand. Neither, is, neither is Old Elk. I I mean they have put out some shit in my opinion. I, yes, it's so bland. It's it's blander than Willet. You're not wrong. But let's still. take for example let's take for example uh Deerhammer, Lenny Eckstein, and Todd Leopold at the very least. Uh okay. two ninety one, right? 
those guys are not doing anything wrong. It's very distinctly Colorado whiskey. The same thing with Texas. Texas obviously is driven by heat. It's driven by barrel. But God damn, there are so many good whiskeys that you can find in Texas if you look for them. Right. Ranger Creek. Right. Um, Iron Root Republic. That's another great one. Right. I'm not huge on Garrison Brothers, but people do like it. Okay. Yeah. So it's cool to see those grow. Now, at the same time, here's the controversial part. Being an Indiana boy, being on the wrong side of the river, similar to Ohio, and having the same distilling history as Kentucky, just as Ohio has, that people have forgotten, there's a little piece of me that goes, when people ask how many craft distilleries there are in the state of Indiana, there's 37 of us. Then when people follow that question up with how many of them do you take seriously? And I say four, right? Right. There four, four of us. And what was at one point in time, trading places with Indiana and Illinois is the top distilling state in the United States. Why the fuck are Colorado and Texas whipping our ass? I need the other, the other 30 plus distilleries in the state of Indiana to stand up and go, no, fuck that. We know what we're doing, right? We know how to do this. We can do it and we will do it. But until I start seeing their names being taken seriously, I have a hard time taking my own state seriously. But but what's really fucked up about it is that it's not just, just like being an artist. You have to be able to have the whole package. And that's one thing that I, I and I'll say it, and, and I really think that when Spirit of French Lick let Jolie go, there's an aspect of promotion that us craft distillery has to do. They have to fucking be able to deal with the distributors, one. If you can't, you're fucked. But then you have to be able to brand yourself something. And like what you've done with the Spirit of French Lick is branded yourself you put a brand on the spirit of French Lick that there's an aspect of fucking moonshining, distilling, love of passion of what you're putting out. And that comes across by what you and Jolie set up and what you continue to set up. And that's something that needs, it's just like with, I, I with my, my fucking, with the Scotching Bourbon Boys, I have to fucking work my ass off on social media to drive fucking people to YouTube or drive them to Apple Podcasts so that eventually my fucking algorithm gets included because I've driven enough people. It's the same thing with whiskey. You have to drive enough people and then eventually it catches on the marketing and you got to keep up your marketing, but it's going to catch on and you won't have a problem selling your product. But if you're not willing to do all of it because it's all important, you're not fucking going to take it any step forward you can make the best fucking whiskey there ever fucking was and if you can't fucking market it and you have no skills to distribute it who the fuck cares right now you are 100,000 percent absolutely correct yeah. and uh even that's, that's, that's literally that's 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 live or die stuff literally jeff muller when it comes to a craft distillery because yeah. when it comes down to it a craft brand can't rely on the big dollars and the good name of the brand over a hundred years. 
a craft distiller has to rely upon the personalities and the relationships that are created. Okay. And so just moments of honesty here for people who are listening, it's not easy. It's not always fun. It's a pain in the ass. Right. Um, I literally can tell you that in the past six and a half years at Spirits of French Lick, there's been a lot of ups and downs like a roller coaster, right? I literally remember a moment, let's say three years in, sitting outside, smoking a cigarette on a break and thinking, this is not going anywhere because the people that I work for have no understanding of the alcohol industry. And I literally remember having to build myself back up to being excited that I was doing this for a living, which no one who's in the industry who loves whiskey and distilling brandy, whatever should ever have to go through. And the first moment after three years that I got excited was the moment that they hired a salesperson in the name of Sean white. And they hired Sean white and Sean came in and he was literally like a breath of fresh air. He was like, man, it's going to be okay. You make good whiskey. I can market this. I can do something with it. Right. I worked with him for a year. They then brought in, we had a, a marketing lady I'd been friends with for years before I ever worked at Spirits of French Lake, but she didn't understand the liquor industry whatsoever. And so everything every day was a struggle with her trying to explain to her, we need to do this. We need to do that. I'm much better at ideas than I am at implementing ideas sometimes. Right. And so every day I'd go to it every day, it was a little bit of heartbreak, a little bit of coming back going, fuck, she doesn't understand what I'm saying. They hired in Jolie, and honestly, I've said this before, and Jolie said it before, I didn't get along with her. I thought legitimately she was the biggest bitch I ever met the first day I ever fucking met her, and I fucking love that woman more than I can ever explain the words to this day, right? And once we, we got past our bullshit, whatever her preconceived notions and my preconceived notions were, then I was like, well, goddamn, now I have legitimately a sales dude who has worked in the bigger industry for great big distribution companies. And I've got a marketing lady who, even though she's new to the industry, she's put herself in the middle of all this. She understands all of it. She's researching all of it. She doesn't know everything yet, but she's learning as she goes. That got me excited as a distiller, right? And then that's the moment in time where Spirits of French Lake starts reaching out. Listen, you got a podcast, reach out to me. I'll be on your podcast. You got a tasting and you've got a bourbon club and there's nine people in it and it's in your basement. I'm fucking there on Saturday night, two and a half hours away. I don't give a shit what the fuck I got going on. That's exciting, cool fucking shit, right? But what agged it on was having two people on the team who were coming up to me on Monday morning going, dude. I know that your Saturday was lost. I know you spent two and a half hours driving there and two and a half hours back. And you spent four hours there, but you got nine people now that are now advocates for your fucking brand. Right. And they're behind your brand and they love your brand. Cause you came there and you ate the, you ate the wife's venison chili. Right. And you hung out and you talked about the product. But if you don't have that fucking team, I'm not sure how much of it matters as you just said, Right. Now, I will say this. It sucks that Spirits of French Lake lost Jolie and, and Jolie's at a, a new place and she's doing new cool shit. And I support that 100 million percent. Um, Spirits of French Lake lost their salesperson. 
and it sucks. He got a better job, but he's doing what he does. He still helps us out, right? He helps me out. And he does call me from time to time and say, hey, you know, lift your head up, and do your shit and get your job done. And this, these are normal ups and downs of industry, obviously. Um, but we do have a new salesperson, a new marketing person, and they are pushing those things. And there's a little bit more of that camaraderie coming around. These are normal ups and downs again. Um, but I will tell you that if a craft distillery does not have those things and a craft distiller that is supposed to be the face of those things and the inspiration and the voice behind those things, if they don't have that person just pushing the fuck out of them, get it, go do your thing, go do your thing, right? If you don't have that and your craft distillery and your brand is made out of personality, it not only becomes very hard for the company, it becomes very hard for the distiller and the quote unquote face of that company if they don't have those people behind them to push them towards Monday doesn't have to be the worst fucking day of the week. Right, boys? It can be a great day of the week if somebody's there to fucking push you into it being a great day. Yeah, you know? that's exactly right. It's like the it just comes down to the people that you work with. But one thing that the craft distillers do have to go through is exactly what you said. You lose the people because you're a craft distiller, and if the, when those people are good, they're going to go other places because they're yeah. good. But or or whatever, or the ownership doesn't understand their value. There's lots of different things, but the but once again, the key to any distillery, the number one thing is producing good alcohol, and then everything else has to fall in place to sell that once again, okay. you could, but, but the last thing I want to say is that even moonshiners, when they're moving their product, if their product was shit and people didn't like it, nobody's moving that fuck it. Nobody's going to drink that. I had a, a guy at work that put up his own still produced moonshine and he, everybody was buying it. But all of a sudden one day it got cold and it froze. <laughs> and no one, no one fucking bought it after that because he's producing shit that that well, had too much fucking water. Let me tell you, as a as a former moonshiner, that's a phone call that you don't want from somebody who's pissed off that their, their fucking froze. moonshine froze at twenty eight degrees. Right, right. <laughs> Well, and the, old, the only other thing I'd say about craft distilling is this is, and, and this is just distilling in general. And, and for a lot of people, especially in the culture we live in where, where distilling is popular and people want to make it because it's almost like being the next rock star, what the fuck ever, right? For whatever reasons that that exists, regardless of whatever your team is, regardless of whatever your background is, regardless of who's been there, who's no longer there, et cetera. If you don't wake up every morning as a distiller and go, even sometimes work sucks, right? If you don't wake up every morning and go, I'm going to go do the best I fucking can. I'm going to go make some shit that's going to turn heads. I'm going to go talk shit on the internet about the shit that I make to get your fucking attention. I'm going to tell you that you're fucking wrong about the things that you think you know because you're not a producer. You're probably in the wrong fucking industry. I literally wake up every morning feeling lucky as fuck that I get to put my fucking pants on right side out, just like every other fucking God-fearing American, 
and shit in a bowl of clean drinking water, <laughs> get in my car and drive to fucking work. And what do I get to do for a living? I get to make whiskey. I get to make a product, which I am proud of, which represents the heritage of not only my family, but also the place where I'm from. And if I'm lucky, it's good. You go home and you taste it. And maybe on a Friday night, you come home and regardless of your circumstance, and let's take the worst possible circumstance we can, right? As human beings, as living organisms on this fucking planet, maybe you lost somebody. A lot of people lost people in the past two years, right? Maybe something went wrong in life and people passed away and life is hard in that moment. And if my whiskey can be a part of that moment where you can open a door that ordinarily your consciousness could not open and you can have a moment that you would not ordinarily be vulnerable enough to have and you can go into some self-healing spiritual realm that helps you get through whatever moment you're having at that point in time. As far as I'm concerned, that's the only thing I'm talented enough to do. And that's fucking good enough. That's cool shit. I um, No, I 100% agree. Yeah. And, and that's what your love of this, this industry is. And it, talks through your whiskey there's no doubt when you're when you're drinking it but now with that said that was fantastic that was a fucking awesome moment thank you but we want to talk about the absinthe because we got this set up this we'll finish up with this this is the fascination street we got it in there we're gonna you know know, there's something we got to do what he just said you've got to take that whole soliloquy that he just recited and it's got to be put on a, that's got to become part of the labeling of his bottles. Yeah, that one. It absolutely does. Yeah, you put that. You, you may, may, maybe maybe condense it slightly, but preserve the essence of it to where it flows, and you stick that fucking, on your fucking, bottles um, that because would, that's too priceless to just let go off into cyberspace and not do anything with. Or make a, a special whiskey that has that fucking on. Yeah, it, you've got to have that on That's your bottle. Amazing. My God, you got to have that on your bottle. Here, here's here's my marketing 101, and Jolie would tell me I'm wrong, and she would fix this. But what you do is is you would do a shirt, and what it would say is it would be just Alan Bishop is a motherfucker like five times in a row, just in text, <laughs> then a quote, and then fuck this guy five times in text at the bottom, right? <laughs> So it's never taken too seriously. <laughs> yeah, like she no, was, but I'm, like I'm telling you that when you um, when you uh, were doing that iconoclast and you were telling everybody that it was two thousand dollars on the secondary market, and she called you up and said, "What the fuck are you doing?" She's just, when we did when we did that unpretentious. I will never forget the greatest yeah, moment. It was of my unpretentious. Career. Yes, sorry. You're good. And we'll wrap this up with absinthe. But the greatest moment of my career thus far, out of everything cool I've done, getting to uh, to sit down and drink my bourbon with Jimmy Russell was a pretty cool moment, right? That was that was that was awesome. Definitely. Cool. Uh, even even if we're you know night and day different from one another, that was cool stuff. Um, the greatest moment of my career, and I will never forget this, is. I made those posts about unpretentious on the secondary market and it started off, you know, day one, I did, it was $500. Day two, I went to the bottle was $1,200 and a shot was $250. Day 
day three, I went to the bottle was $5,000. A shot was $500. Yep. There were people, I will never forget this. I walked through the office and there were people that had called the tasting room. And they said, is a shot of this unpretentious really $500? And I'll never forget this. There were employees that worked in the tasting room going, are we really charging $500 a shot for this? Because people but, were asking. But, but see, what's like, fucked up. What's, if, what, I can, if I control that, I control anything. Yes, but at the same time, if anybody ever fucking knew you, you knew 100% that it would be like, you would rather fucking die than sell a shot for 500 fucking dollars. That's, right. You want to sell $500 a shot whiskey to people for $12. Now, let me tell you, here's here's where humility comes into play, boys. So I just made fun of Sazerac, and we just talked about all that stuff, right, and what people pay for products and this and that and the other. If I owned a piece of a company and I thought for one minute that there was one product, even if I thought it was ridiculous, that I could make $500 a shot off of, put me in fucking line number one. (laughs) I will sign off on that fucking shit. I will. I'll be driving a fucking A one fucking Tesla so fast it'll make your fucking head spin, and I'll still sell you good whiskey at a reasonable price. Yeah, but five hundred dollars. Right, you'll sell everybody else the whiskey almost exactly the same, but that that right. other yeah yeah you're on board for the people who can five can afford five hundred dollars a shot too. Yes, yes. So absinthe. Where are we going with this? We're going well. We're going. We got Fascination Street in there, and we're gonna we're gonna do the old fashioned pushing, even though it's a little bit lower proof than whatever. But let's just do it. I'm gonna start it up. We're gonna, but we're gonna, we're gonna not drip. We're gonna do the Bohemian method. Yep. Although that that's it'll uh, it'll cloud a little bit on you. It's not gonna cloud real dark, but uh, you're gonna get some fantastic caramel flavors off of that. Oh, and that licorice flavor is going to come way to the forefront. So it's going. Um, for those who don't know, who've not had Fascination Street, there is still some available at the distillery because, as you can imagine, Indiana is not Watch. the greatest market for absinthe of all fucking time. Um, this particular absinthe is something that I don't know that anyone has ever done. If somebody can show me some historic example of this, I'll be glad to admit that somebody beat me to it. But what we did was we took absinthe and we actually matured it in a Bourbon new barrel. American oak charred barrel, not a used oak, new American number two char, medium plus toast. And the idea was being a company that is based in the wine industry, I wanted to create an absinthe that had a little bit of a digestive characteristic. A little bit more roundness, a little bit more of a a dessert wine, a little bit more in common with bourbon. Because in America, you have bourbon drinkers and everyone else, right? And absinthe drinkers, for example, very rarely cross over with bourbon drinkers. And bourbon drinkers really never cross over with absinthe drinkers. So what's the middle ground? The middle ground is an absinthe that is a base including 20% oat whiskey at 100% oats into a new American oak barrel at a lower proof 
106, 107. I can't remember what that was off the top of my head. But something that a bourbon drinker can drink a shot of, a drink of, set and enjoy after dinner as a digestif or almost as a uh, dessert wine and enjoy in a way they wouldn't normally think of absinthe. And so that's what we tried to do with Fascination Street. That particular absinthe, like many of the things that we do, uh, one-offs, is named after something that inspired me. Music inspires me greatly. That is named after the Cure song, Fascination Street, particularly the line, uh, waiting for you to kick the last nail in. And that's exactly, to me, what absinthe feels like. It's You're asking for something almost emotionally devastating to happen to you when you drink absinthe. I like it. Uh, I definitely like it straight, you know, just because it's a hundred and uh, what was it? A hundred and four. What is it? What's the proof on it? 104, 106, somewhere in there. Here. You you know what proof it is. It's probably 106. I'll go with you know it's 106. It's 106. Yeah. So, but, you know, we've had, we were drinking absinths that were like 150. Well, that, that, uh, uh, 74. Yeah, 174. 74 ABV. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you're looking at some of, and somewhere in the 120s, but this at 106, you know, you don't have to, Add the water and do the sugar. We just wanted to see. I've I've had it right out of the bottle, and it's uh, definitely drinkable at 106 straight. But adding a little bit of water opens up a lot of flavor to it, and then definitely adding a sugar cube does a d- changes it a lot too. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and it's it's a, a very Americanized absinthe that starts with our uh, our our Swiss Le Bleu style, which is a little lighter. Um, than most traditional absinthe, and then goes again into that new American oak barrel, number two char, medium plus toast, uh, to get a little more of that bourbon tonality to it. And the, the goal here was, again, to to sort of draw bourbon drinkers into absinthe, right, and absinthe drinkers into bourbon. And so it's, it's not a traditional absinthe in the way that you might think of absinthe. It's, uh, it's definitely its own category. It's its own Americanized bastardized thing in a lot of ways so well there's no doubt what i'm what i do think that's different from the normal absinthe is the caramelization you pick up a little bit of caramel and with the licorice and licorice isn't quite is overpowering right so there's that that there's definitely the caramel in there and that's something that you're not going to get through traditional absinthe because of the they're not aging it in charred oak barrels and you're not getting that right but so i know you've really really been studying absinthe so what is your next you know project are you coming out with more absinthe uh yes not necessarily through spirits of french lake but um so absinthe is is Legitimately, of my distilling passions, absinthe and apple brandy are at the top of the list. Um, there's a number of other things not so quite so easily categorized as what those two are. But um, so I did 
the death in the afternoon absinthe, which I did with Key West Trading Company. Uh, so the two absinthe, absinths that you'll get through Spirits of French Lick, they are a little lighter in style than traditional absinthe because six years ago, if you were to introduce a true Swiss style or even a Verde or French style absinthe into the Midwest, people would have rejected it outright. Maybe one they out of ten people. They would have done that, right? Right. Maybe one out of ten people really like that anise flavor, right? That has started to change a little bit as people have gotten more open-minded towards different spirits. Um, it's a little easier in places like Key West. And again, working with Key West Trading Company, uh, doing the death in the afternoon. That is, in my mind and in my opinion, the closest thing that you're going to get to a true French Verde style absinthe in the United States of America. Now, there are two other variations on that particular absinthe that they have not released yet that I did uh, prototype for them and have sold them. There is a uh, amethyst absinthe. Um, which I do have plans for in the future on my own. It's a little bit different. Explain um, that. Explain that. Is aged in mm-hmm. amethyst? Amethyst. Barrel? Amethyst. Yes. So uh, it kind of starts with with what you're tasting right now. So the the barrel aged absinthe that you're tasting, Fascination Street. We actually filtered that through amethyst crystals, and uh, you can find a video of that on my Facebook page. I am not claiming in any way, shape, or form that those amethyst crystals did anything to that absinthe, right? Whatever they may or may not have done is tied into the mysticism of absinthe in general. It's in <laughs> your own mind. It's worth whatever your own opinion of it is. Okay. The step, the step beyond that is, as opposed to coloring an absinthe green using traditional botanicals such as petite wormwood, lemon balm, and hyssop, what if you were to do a very Americanized absinthe and color it using a purple corn variety. Ooh. Right? Yeah. And so you're actually you're actually adding in raw purple corn kernels and extracting the color of those corn kernels into the absinthe, including the flavor of the amino acid anthocyanin, right? So you're 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 now you've now you've taken the old world thing and introduced it into new world agricultural agriculture. So after so after it's distilled, you add the corn kernels, or do you then <laughs> yeah, then, then it, do then you redistill it? Yes. Nope. No. You we don't. Just, no. You're just we, you you're just, just, just getting the the you're not looking for the distilled aspect of the corn. You're looking for the color and the yep. flavor that it will distribute. So we're looking for the purple color, which is associated with anthocyanin, which is an amino acid, which has very particular flavors associated with it, including it? blackberries and blueberries. Now, do you and also the, the starch of the raw corn, which comes through in the flavor profile. But do you cook it or do you just throw the kernels in? You, okay, well, all right. So very rarely do I say there's a trade secret, but I'll, I'll break this one. You heat the raw white absinthe to 145 degrees, okay. and then you add the corn to that to extract the flavor. And then once it add cools, the you you filter out but, the kernels and okay. Don't don't. I'm just asking this question. Don't some absinthe producers, when they add the botanicals, then it's 
it's redistilled. Well, it's just well that that is was the, my understanding. That's like of the a gin basket, right? That's yeah. how you had the 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 botanicals initially, right? Like what we did when we were distilling in Indiana. Yeah. So a, you guys are going down a very interesting road here, and 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 just to clear up some some misconceptions about absinthe, because there are a lot of absence quote unquote being produced right now that don't really fall into the classic definition of what an absinthe is. So traditionally what would happen is if you're going to do a colored verde absinthe, you would take most of your botanical short of petite wormwood, hyssop and lemon balm, which are almost always considered coloring agents. You would macerate those particular botanicals in either low wine or double distilled spirit at 145 degrees for one hour and then redistill. That's okay. going to give you the flavor okay. of the ad. But I that's going to give you a white spirit. Uh, After that white spirit is run off, you're going to take 45 to 48% of it and heat it back up to 145. And then you're going to take your coloring agents and place them into that like a tea bag for 45 minutes to one hour and extract the color and the flavor of hyssop, petite wormwood, and uh, lemon balm. Or, in this case, purple corn, right? Right. At that point, you're then going to filter that coloring agent out of that absinthe and add the colored absinthe back to the white absinthe. And now you're going to have a colored absinthe. It's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a giant pain in the ass. It's it's art. (laughs) It's fucking art. Now there are some, uh, absinths that are, I think, what is it? Norwegian descent where they fucking just throw green food coloring in. Yeah, you'll find they're, they're, uh, they're like fucking lime, like fluorescent green. You'll find a ton of old Soviet block absence from the early 2000s that um, they definitely cheated on. A lot of times they're using uh, artificial oils um, and then coloring with food coloring to get to get this impression of what absinthe is, and unfortunately. If you guys remember back in like 2007 or so, um, there were a lot of absinths on the market and they were really bad. And that's literally what they are, what they were. They were GNS with uh, artificial oils and artificial colors and all that stuff. Yeah, I remember. There was a lot of fluorescent absinths out there. I really think um, what 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 Ted Ted is his name that that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Ted, Ted Bro, yeah, yeah. Ted I mean, he basically legitimized absinthe back in. He was like responsible for changing the law, but then what he produced with Jade and everything, I really think he brought absinthe mm-hmm. back to the mainstream. It, he worked his ass off to do that. He one hundred percent did. And uh, for those that are listening, if you think that you don't like absinthe. I would suggest if you can find a bottle of Jade Edward. Um, the Edward is by far the most accessible absinthe to people who think they don't like absinthe. It's very sweet. It's very rounded. Um, 
even if you're not a fan of licorice in particular, if you're a fan of root beer, you can find something you like in absinthe. And the two very easy ways to consume absinthe, and they're not traditional either one, are either throw it into um, a little eggnog, which is really good, or throw it into a little bit of root beer. That's so, like, so you've had my my scotchy bourbon balls, right? Yes, sir. You know that I make them strong. (laughs) I had a, a woman who bought them and said that they weren't strong enough. So what she did is dip them in eggnog, homemade eggnog with brandy and Jim Beam bourbon, dip them in that eggnog, and then they were strong enough for her. And I'm just like, I'm like, holy wow. shit, girl. I mean, you must not like anything produced for, <laughs> you know, any nothing produced for the the general market. You know what I mean? Because they just have to have it way watered down. But she told me to try it. So I can't wait till next year when I get my wife to pr- make some homemade eggnog. I'm going to be dipping my bourbon balls in there. Interesting. This is a great absinthe, the, by the uh, way. I like really this. Cool things that I thought about the uh, the documentary, documentary that we did with Bo. So we had obviously our our bourbon friends like you guys up, and we had our our moonshine friends like some of the guys from Hell's Half. What happened? Oh, we just we lost just him. lost him. All right, I think we just. Oh, here he comes back. He's coming back. Boom. Yeah. You're there now, but yeah, we, got you, you. we don't got your your audio. I think when you moved out of that room, you lost your connection. Okay. I got your audio, but I don't got your video. Okay. Hold on just a sec. Okay. <laughs> we got it. It says the alchemist. Alchemist. The alchemist. 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 Mm-hmm. Still no video. What's no video. Uh, I might be able to help. Let's see. Come on. I got to think what I got to do. All right. There we go. I'm going to go stop video. Nope, 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 nope. Uh, you're there, but no video. I think that's just suggesting. Well, you can keep talking. Yeah. All right. So uh, one of the really cool things that happened at the uh, the filming with Bo Cumberland is uh, so we had our, our bourbon friends like you guys. Right. And then I also had some of my uh, moonshine friends, you know, people from uh, Hell's Half Acre. And so you brought the bourbon balls and a good friend of ours, Shauna Courtney Bell, brought moonshine balls. Right. Yep. Now, one of the really neat things about that that uh, you may or may not know is that those moonshine balls that Shauna made were actually made out of more or less the raw moonshine type spirit of what Lee Sinclair was back in the day. Okay. So it was kind of cool to see the, you know, sort of the contrast between uh, that more commercial leaning ingredient versus the raw home ingredient. Right. And, uh, and see the difference between the two of them. Yeah, there's there's no doubt there's a difference. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Hers, hers were super fucking hot, uh, but they were good. Right. You know, they were just, it was a different thing. And she also, um, I don't know if she told you or not. Did she, did, did you talk to her any about the production process on that? No, I, I didn't get to. So she actually soaked those walnuts for her bourbon balls in that moonshine for over a year in the refrigerator. So a year. So she's a year uh, the, the bourbon balls that was four months in. Mm -hmm. And I think I want to, I got to remember what it was. Mm, It was, it was one of the major bottled in bonds. It's like I find that a hundred proof bottled in bond, but but the longer you soak the pecans, because I use pecans, the better the quality the quality is. This year when we uh now the average person doesn't pick up on that, right? Mm-hmm. Because you know, they're they don't have a lot to compare compare to. So if they're comparing to legal bourbon balls that people have to abide by the rules to mass produce and sell at all the distilleries. The bourbon balls that I produce have enough bourbon that in them. And then we've, we tried to perfect the balance between the filling and the chocolate. Right. So, so I find right about four months is perfect. When we were being pushed this past season, to produce more bourbon balls, the least amount was two weeks. And then then we first, we I had two batches at four months. I had another batch at two months. And then I had another three batches at two weeks because we were, we did not expect the demand. But right. two weeks is the minimal. If we tried one batch at a week, which Maker's Mark suggests, and it just didn't work. You know, right. after tasting the other one, but the longer it soaks, the better it is. So one year, I, I, you know, that's that's fantastic. But how the fuck are you gonna produce <laughs> any product at any level when you're waiting a year for? Oh, absolutely. The the walnuts, absolutely. you know, and then I do like pecans over walnuts. We've done walnuts and cashews and pecans, and pecans still. The best batch we ever we've made is if we have, because what happens to the cashews is they liquefy. The walnuts are bitter; they add a bitter aspect to it, and the pecans are sweet. But we did this walnut cashew mix, uh, not a walnut cashew, but a pecan cashew mix, and that seemed to be what this year what we're going to lean towards when right. we do next year when we start to have to. The holidays always yeah. people are ordering left and right. Well, she didn't. Uh, she didn't leave the walnuts in there for a year on purpose. It was totally. She forgot about it in the back three. <laughs> no, it, it's the same thing. When I first, when I first was doing it, I was doing it for two, two weeks to a month. But then COVID hit, and I let it sit for. I mean, it hit. It it was hitting in like March when everything closed down, and I'm like, I'm not making bourbon balls. You know it, it, that. So I let it sit all the way March. April, May, June, July, August. So six months before we even considered actually being able to make some bourbon balls. And mm-hmm. and, and all of a sudden we were like, well, the longer you let it sit, it obviously increases the better taste. 
But two weeks is the least amount you can do it. You have to at, le- at least let it sit for two weeks. Otherwise, they just start to like go to shit. Well, yours are, are by far the best the best bourbon balls I've ever had. And, and uh, you guys will enjoy this. And this might be a nice little ending note for you. So uh, hating the industry the way I do and loving my friends in the industry the way I do and getting together with you guys and doing this documentary and all that stuff and getting to hang out with people that I actually like and enjoy spending time with. Uh, <laughs> let, me tell you what the, let me tell you what the downside of that is, which there's an upside to the downside. The, uh, the downside is waking up at one o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday and going, motherfucker, I've got to clean up all that fucking shit <laughs> and go to work tomorrow. Yeah. So I will I will tell you that your bourbon balls and Shauna's moonshine balls kept me from having <laughs> a ridiculous hangover and made it a manageable hangover. <laughs> Cleaned up the amount of uh, bullshit that we accumulated in 12 hours worth of filming. Uh, but there's nothing worse and nothing more lonely than being hungover on a Sunday in the woods while it's fucking cold, cleaning up fucking shit from a party, from a documentary you have yet to see, and uh, just surviving off bourbon balls like some lonely fucking George Jones fucking song. <laughs> I got I got the text message or the Facebook message from Kim, Kim that uh, <laughs> your daughter, she's like, uh, those are not, uh, those are not kid friendly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Cause yeah, she was, she was all kinds of pissed that I was eating those things at the fucking kitchen table. She came in there and she goes, can I have one of those? I was like, no, you can't. She goes, why not? And I said, cause they got bourbon in them. She goes, I've tasted bourbon before. It'll be okay. <laughs> right. She's six years old. I'm like, yeah, there, here's the, the father of the year award right here. <laughs> my uh, my i got lucky because my uh, granddaughter who lives with us is five and she basically at three had an episode at the bookstore where she just ran into the bookstore and for whatever reason got the stomach flu and barfed all over the bookstore so she hates barfing so if you tell her anything will make her barf she will never touch it so she understands bourbon makes you barf <laughs> <laughs> that might be a plus. Yeah. That could be a plus. So she's got that down. So when she says, are, she's just, she's always like, are those alcoholic? Yeah. <laughs> well, I will, I will say this. One of the, one of the great pleasures in my life was getting to hang out with people that I really like and I really enjoy and getting to do these things that the, the, the industry that I so much claim to hate gives me the opportunity to meet these people that I now consider family like you guys um, my daughter, she's she is the best about reminding me that how lucky we are because she'll say things like, "Well, I haven't heard from Aunt Jolie for a while, right?" Or uh, "I've not seen Uncle Mike or Uncle Benji or or whatever Uncle Kevin or uh, you know Uncle Max who I worked with at Copper and Kings, right?" She she grew up with it and it, it's a part of her life, and uh, you know should she so choose. And it's her choice, obviously, to go into this industry. She's going to have so many opportunities from the people who we've become friends with and become more than just industry associates with who care about what she may do in the future. And that's cool. 
Yeah, and there's the the women in bourbon, the bourbon industry, and the the women who are distilling are so fantastic that she would be welcomed, you know. But right. like you said, she has to choose it. Everybody has to choose yep. their own path. Yep. Yeah, yeah. There's um one other thing I wanted to tell you guys about that I thought you might think is neat, and and uh, maybe listeners might think is cool. Um, I'm not going to say her name because I'm not sure that it's kosher to to uh, to say this, but I went to school, obviously in the middle of nowhere, and people think that that you know hillbillies are just dumb, nobodies, whatever. But uh, I went to school with a lot of very talented, very smart people, and uh, one of the things that I'm very excited about is I went to school with a uh, a, a woman who is just a little older than I am who is legitimately on the short list for Mars. Whoever decides they're going to Mars first, she's on that ship. And she's been, she's been training for this for years and years and years, lives in New Zealand nowadays. Um, but the long and short of it is that she's got a bunch of little mini keychain barrels full of Lee Sinclair. Excellent. Nice. And if she leaves for Mars tomorrow, you know what's going with her? Lee Sinclair. Lee Sinclair. That's now, awesome. Now, I'm I'm kind of disappointed that you're not sending the William Dalton French stave, <laughs> the French oak stave fucking, because that should be going because it's the best bourbon I've ever tasted. <laughs> well, you know, if we, if we want to get real technical here and we want to go super white trash, grew up in a trailer park in the middle of nowhere, uh, you know, you know, it ought to go. So 120 years from now, maybe people talk about Mars like it's the Wild West, like we do nowadays. I'd say Old Granddad 114 is probably the top of the list. <laughs> That's some damn you know? good shit. There's no doubt. Right. It's like Old Granddad, even bottled in Bond is okay, but the 114, it's just so fucking full of body. There's no doubt. It's just like, yeah, if you yeah. want an alien to fucking drink a bourbon, I agree. You want to fight an alien, that's what you drink. <laughs> Hopefully, we don't have to fight aliens because we'll get our asses kicked, right? Mm-hmm. Did I ever tell you the uh, so you, the, abbreviate, the abbreviation of Old Granddad is OGD, and that stands for two things. Old Granddad and Old Goddamn God for the hangover tomorrow. Yep, Old Goddamn it. <laughs> There's yep. no doubt. Yep. I, I, every time someone mentions that, I see that, and I'm just like, what the fuck? Yep. <laughs> right. All right, man. Well, all right. So thank you so much for your time and getting us fucked up. Yeah. And hope, and you were already, you already going. So, but, uh, it's been a pleasure, Alan. We really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Gentlemen. I always appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me on. All right. So remember everybody, www.scotchybourbonboys.com. The website is working again after some technical difficulties, but check us out there. But also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, that takes us out. And also please uh, watch us uh, when you're watching on your favorite podcast format. Make sure you leave really, really good feedback. If you don't like what you're watching, Basically, fuck you and don't leave feedback. <laughs> so, all right. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. And Thanks for joining us. <laughs> hey, real, real quick aside. You got a minute? Yeah, I got a, I got a minute.
Yeah, yeah. Look, hey, I'm fucking with your music. I fucked up your whole production. No, 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 not at all. We love you. So, <laughs> thank you, Jeff. So, for those who are still paying attention to this point, uh, <laughs> two would, fucking hours would, later, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, all three of you out there. <laughs> yes, yes, all three of you who will message me and be like, "What's wrong with you?" <laughs> um, the long and the short of it is, one thing I want to wrap up with: uh, the Southern Indiana Distilling Complex is growing, hopefully in time to compete with Colorado and Texas. And uh, my former cohort, Julie Kasperzak, apparently has a new project under her belt, um, which is within the six-county region of the Black Forest, the old uh, Black Forest with 155-plus distilleries between 1855 and 1914. So over in nearby Crawford County, people should be on the lookout for a new distillery called Old Homestead. And uh, if you can get any information out of Joey Casper, Zach, please let me know because she won't tell me a fucking thing about anything that's going on over there whatsoever. And I would love to know what she's got up her sleeve to compete with me. <laughs> so would we, right? I'll see what I can do for you on that front. Right? Yeah. So yeah you let, me know. let me know. I will for sure. All right, now this time we're really leaving. All right, everybody remember, <laughs> good bourbon equals good friends and good times. times. And go out there and live your fucking life dangerously. Night, everyone. Oh, show me the way to the next. Whiskey bar, oh, don't ask why, oh, don't ask why. Show me the way to the next whiskey bar, oh, don't ask why, oh, don't ask why. For if we don't find the next whiskey bar, I tell you we must die, I tell you we must die. I tell you, I tell you, I tell you, we must die. Hey, Scotchy Bourbon Boys fans, this is Alan Bishop, Indiana's alchemist of the Black Forest. So I'm tuning in here today to tell you all about the One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute channel on YouTube. If you're at all interested in the art of distilling, whether it be home distilling or professional distilling, and the intense geekery that goes into that process, then check out the One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute on YouTube. I promise you're going to learn something you didn't know before about the arts.